Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boyson inviting you to listen to our latest podcast episode, number 983, with author Cormac Russell about his new book that he co-authored with John McKnight entitled The Connected Community, Discovering the Health, Wealth, and Power of Neighborhoods. This podcast, number 983, is brought to you by Pamela Binkler, author of a new book entitled Conscious Bravery, Caring for Someone with Addiction. If you want to know more about Pamela, her classes, services, book, please visit her website at www.pamelabrinkler.com. That's www.p-a-m-e-l-a-b-r-i-n-k-e-r.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my engaging interview with Cormac Russell about his new book he co-authored with John McKnight entitled The Connected Community. Discovering the health, wealth, and power of neighborhoods. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boyce and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I have Cormac Russell joining us from Dublin, Ireland. Good evening to you, Cormac. How are you doing? Good evening, Greg. I'm very well and very happy to be with you. Well, we're happy to have you, and we're going to be speaking today about his book, also his website, which is a huge resource we were just talking about, The Connected Community, subtitled Discovering the Health, Wealth, and Power of Neighborhoods. Uh, This is also co-authored with John McKnight, Um, and I want to give a shout out to John, because John is a kind of when you go to his website, he is um, a foundation in this particular Mm -hmm. Uh, arena. So um, both of them have done a great job uh, writing this book. And I want to let my listeners don't know just a little bit about you. Cormac is a social explorer and author and a much sought after speaker. He is the founding director of Nurture Development, which that is the website, nurturedevelopment.org, and a member of the Assets-Based Community Development Institute, at St. Paul University in Chicago. Uh, Over the last 25 years, Cormac's work has demonstrated an enduring impact in 35 countries around the world. He has trained communities, agencies, NGOs, and governments in the ABCD and other community-based approaches in Africa, Asia, Australia, Europe, and North America. Um, this is his most recent book. He has another book that was released prior to this called Rekindling Democracy, a Professional Guide to Working in Citizen Space. Uh, you can go to his uh, website and you can also see a link to his TED Talk. So, you know, you had uh, Parker uh, Palmer write the introduction to your book, and it struck me with what he said. He wrote, many of us are hard-pressed to provide color commentaries on our own neighborhoods, um, and for that, we're going to pay a price, or we are paying a price. Uh, Our disconnection from people and place diminishes our quality of life, and its root cause is a range of personal and political pathologies. Um, I agree, Uh, one including loneliness, you know, just Mm. people, separation, and loneliness. And that's a big issue since COVID, um, another big issue that people are faced with. Um, what are some of those pathologies and that we're really faced with, in your estimation? 
Cormac? Well, Greg, it's a very powerful quote, and it's exactly what we would expect from uh, a wisdom holder like Parker. And he's on the money on this one, I think. Like you say, loneliness is on the rise. Uh, We're looking at a deepening sense of social disconnection, but not just. uh, I think we're paying for this level of disconnection with our health as well. So when we look, even though we're living longer, in many cases, people are living longer, but a lot more dissatisfied over time. So we're disconnected, I think, from each other. We're disconnected, but we're also disconnected often from our own power sources. In terms of democracy, we're often outsourcing uh, a lot of our agency, which we could, you know, harness collectively at the local level. A lot of people thinking democracy is about voting or just expressing an opinion. Uh, It's about a lot more. It's about active citizenship. We're seeing at the moment very strong examples of what happens when you outsource the production of the energy you consume to distant, non-renewable, price-gouging monopolies. Uh, We're paying a very high price for that right now, and we will continue over the winter. We see this in Europe, and we see this in North America uh, and other places. So I think both in terms of our health and in terms of our citizenship, what he's really calling our attention to here is if we farm out our power and our strength to distant institutions, we shouldn't be surprised when we feel diminished and we feel polarized from each other. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Yeah, and and I think it takes more effort to find things locally. So, Mm. I mean... That being, let's just say, even farmers markets, right? And buying your goods from a local farmer, that's a very small example. But I know in your country, you know, you're using wind power too, right? And, and we're using some here, but not to the degree that, um, Ireland has really pushed the wind power. And I think having those resources and understanding how we are getting our assets is really, really important, our resources, our assets. And if you would, speak with the listeners about good life, which is about collective effort and cooperation, not individualism and a competition. Uh, how do we go about creating good life in our communities? Because, you know, I love the term that you're using to kind of identify what this is, which is about cooperation and the collective. Um, and what is it at the essence that we need to do to have more of that versus Mm. this mindset, which this Western culture that we've all been brought up in has always, and I'll say even in corporations, it's command and control, and it's Mm. been about competition. We are seeing a shift. It's a gradual shift. Um, but I'd love to know what it is about the good life or how we would go about that good life. Absolutely. That's really what we're trying to call uh, attention to in the book. So for me, the good life is about Ubuntu, which is a South African expression, which means I am because we are. So it shifts my focus away from, you know, the Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, the rugged individual story and says, we're not self reliant. We're actually other reliant. We're interdependent in all kinds of ways with each other, even if we don't like to admit it. It just is as it is. We're social beings. 
And so the good life is not something you go off on your own and experience. We need each other. We need connection with place, with people, uh, with culture, with environment. And I suppose in many respects, the good life is about coming home to the fact that a lot of what we need to have a decent life for ourselves and our families is much closer at hand than we think. But we've outsourced an awful lot of that power to institutions and professions who are very good and well-intentioned. But for me, an example of this is uh, what happened a year ago in Shreveport, Louisiana, where a school arrested 23 kids. So here you have a school where the kids go to school and essentially the first people they're greeted by are security guards and they're going through a scanning machine and they're being patted down for, for guns and for weapons. And not surprisingly, if you, if you have that kind of environment, very quickly you get a culture that is competitive and aggressive. And so 23 kids are arrested. What happens? Well, here you have an example of where the story is about how the system hits its limit. So you've got a good principal, good teachers, good counselors, well-intended security guards, etc. But none of them can keep the kids safe. What's going on? A few days after this happens, 40 dads who live in the local neighborhoods say, you know something, this is our business. We got good professionals, they're doing their best, but this isn't okay. So they go to the uh, principal and they say, well, we'd like to do something to contribute here. How can we help? And they set up what they call dads on duty. And they go into the school, into the uh, hallways, and without any force, without any threat of violence or intimidation, with dad jokes and high fives, they start loving these kids back to peace. These aren't vigilantes. They're vigilant elders who are showing up because they take seriously the idea that it takes a village to raise a child. And by the way, Greg, everybody believes this. There's nobody I've ever met who doesn't say, yes, that makes sense to me. But hardly anybody is doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. So if it takes a village to raise a child, what does it take to raise a village? Well, these dads reckon it takes the dad showing up. And so I think this is a really important insight about what it means to have a good life. The good life is contingent on the connectivity of the village. It's not something that we can do through personal growth on our own. And it's not even something that a family on its own can do. Even the best intended schools can't do it on their own. It really does require the connections across the village. And that's the work to be done, I think. What do you think that, I mean, we we see grassroots kind of advocates and people that are much more motivated than others to create a movement like the dads got together and did this mm-hmm. as small a movement as you want. It was a movement for good, the good life, as you t- refer to it as. Um, how is it that we inspire people to want to take that action? Because it is really around an action, mm-hmm. a positive action to make something different, to change something for the better. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I, I, my sense is because of how we've been conditioned, there's a lot of complacency around this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I would just love to know what you think 
can be done to kind of inspire that? And at what level and where do we start? I mean, um, I, I think you need yeah. to start people at younger levels, mm. junior high, high school. For sure. For sure. I, I think what's what's really important is you often hear people say, well, folks are very apathetic these days, so they're not showing up in the way that they might have in the past. We have wonderful books like Bowling Alone uh, that tells us, you know, there's a retreat in the level of engagement at volunteer level and civic level. And I think that's all true. But to be positive, I think we know that everybody cares about something enough to act upon it. We just often don't know what that is. So I think the first step is to find out what people care about. And instead of trying to convert them to what we think they should do, it's really about deeply listening to what gets them going, what lights their fire. A lot of people, you know, it's really striking. They're more like clients crouched over kindling, waiting for other people to light their fire as, yeah. as against lighting their own, you know. Yeah. But it's important to not moralize. I think people get quite frightened sometimes by the scale. So I think when we can say to people that however you show up is good enough. So during COVID, I was saying to uh, neighbors of mine, get to know your neighbors before you need them. And it might be that all you do during lockdown is commit to call three members of your golf club or if you're a member of, you know, a church, link in with those three people every single day over the phone. If that's a threshold, if that's something you know you can do and you can do it daily, that's enough. If everybody did that, oh, yeah, would that would be lockdown phenomenally more tolerable, right? Yeah, so yeah. It, it's about saying whatever it is you do. If it's about contributing to the well-being of the neighborhood, that's great. So I like the idea that we're distributing the responsibility and therefore small acts can make a big difference. I like the small acts part. And I think that that's something everybody can do. You know, like you said, if you can um, just see three people, you know, my my wife hosted a cookie exchange here at the house. And it's interesting. You get I as the man wasn't supposed to be here, but I was anyway, you know, and you get to know the people a lot better and you get an opportunity to, to commiserate and talk about things and what's going on in the neighborhood. Um, and you state that at, at the root of many of the world's problems is our dis- disconnection from one another and from our natural surroundings. And I, and I want to underscore natural surroundings. What are some of the side effects of this disconnection and what can we do about it? I mean, I know when I know for me, a very important element, I'm just speaking personally, my listeners know me is my connection to nature. It's like I have to get out and I have to be in nature because if I'm not, it's like my whole creativity goes down the drain and and I don't have that sense of spirituality and connection to the greater, you know, um, I don't want to call it nature, right, of things. So what are some of the side effects of these disconnections? Well, what starts to happen is we start to numb out, not just from our own instincts as human beings, 
but we start to numb out to all kinds of possibilities. The possibility of, you know, if you could imagine standing at the corner of your block and you've got the, these x-ray glasses on that allow you see things that you typically don't notice, like the gifts of your neighbors, the possibilities of the networks, the clubs, the groups, the generosity of the mom and papa store that watches out for people who don't turn up to get their their newspaper and will go and knock on the door. So all of these invisible but really vital things, these assets as we call them, in the neighborhood, if we could see those and we were connected to those, we could then tap into those as well as contributing. We could benefit from them. Now, now the issue is, is when you're disconnected, you can be in a, in a place, but not of a place. And when we're connected, just to be affirmative, when we're connected, we're in a reciprocal relationship. So we are nourishing and being nourished. And our nature, natura, nature, we are soil beings as well as human beings. So human comes from the same root as humus. <laughs> so we are soil beings. We must have a sense of being connected to soil, being connected to nature. Uh, it gives us a rooted sense of who we are. Mm-hmm. And it makes it much easier for us to be in flow, uh, to be in our citizenship and to be in our power. And, and it makes problem solving much easier. It also reduces polarization. Disconnection. Uh, is is similar to polarization, you know, where you're stuck at the cerebral level, where all you're talking about is opinions. When you're rooted with people in place, what you start to do is move beyond opinions towards contribution, towards commitment. And when you're committed in action, in nature, in soil, hey, guess what happens? You start acting in a much more common sense way. You become a commoner <laughs> and it is healthy for everybody and all species. There's 8 million species on the planet. We're one. And just, you know, I think we just get to a place where we can be uh, better at being human together with each other and with mother earth. And that matters. I think a huge amount. Yeah. Yes. Especially during these times as we've seen environmental changes across the globe. Um, everything from wildfires here in California to uh, diminishing uh, rains in many areas. Um, it, it is very apparent that there is an imbalance going on. Um, CO2 emissions increasing. And, you know, as you said, you know, the name of your nonprofit is Nurture Development Org. Uh, it is about us making that connection again. You know, if you would speak with the listeners about your co-author in his book, Building Communities from the Inside Out, um, which became known as the Green Book. Um, also, tell us about the Asset-Based Community Development Institute, if you would. Sure. Happy to, Greg. So John McKnight, John is, I would describe him as a luminary uh, in the community development, community organizing world particularly in North America. So over the last 60 years, he's really, he, he's defined, I think, a huge amount of how we think about building community from the inside out rather than from outside in, which I think was very much the way things might have been thought about before his, his contribution became well known. So, so across, he's 91 this year, it was 91 uh, in November. 
last month. So across the last six decades, you know, from journeying very deeply uh, in the civil rights movement, working uh, alongside uh, Reverend Martin Luther King and and other key leaders uh, into the Kennedy administration, where he worked on affirmative action, into being a, uh, a lecturer, teacher at Northwestern University, uh, and lots of high high points in, I suppose, in that journey. He trained Barack Obama and Michelle Obama in asset-based community development and community organizing uh, in the late 80s. And then one of the things that might be worth mentioning for your uh, listeners as well, Greg, is in, in the late 80s also, John and a close colleague of his, Jody Kretzman, and uh, about 17 others, started to do something that I think really grounded and defined what we understand to be John's primary contribution around asset-based community development. And this explains a little bit around where the ABCD Institute comes out of. So in the late 80s, they visited 20 cities and 300 neighborhoods across North America. And these were neighborhoods which had been defined by the sum of their problems. So they were very much seen as backwaters of pathology. And John and Jody wanted to go in to those neighborhoods and deeply listen to people, not as problems to be solved, but as incredibly gifted individuals with experience, knowledge, ideas, and creativity, and wanted to try to understand from them what it was that they were doing to make life better. And as they listened to people, you know, share stories about times that their neighbors had joined together to make things better, what they began to realize, and this is where the Green Book emerged from that you mentioned, was these stories. You know, as they listened to the stories about how people got together to be effective, they started to realize that the dominant narrative in North America, which kind of said, you know, things get better if you've got better schools, if you've got better hospitals, if you've got better institutions, was actually missing a trick. Because what those folks were telling them in their neighborhoods is things get better, sustainably better, when people who live in the neighborhoods, sleep in the neighborhoods, trade in the neighborhoods, get together and see themselves as primary actors. And they uh, take on the steering wheel and they're the primary drivers of change. And particularly when they use local assets and they discover, connect, and mobilize those assets. So in many respects, the Green Book was a compendium of those stories. So they gathered 3,000 stories, which were calling our attention to change that happens from inside out rather than outside in, and that was community-led and place-based. And that book, the Green Book, which I have a copy of here, uh, was written 30 years ago, uh, give or take, uh, 1993. And it became very significant. So it, in in our world, uh, you know, if a book like that sells maybe 20,000 copies, that's that's a bestseller. So over the course of time, they have sold something in the region of 140,000. Sorry, 120,000 have been sold and 20,000 have been gifted. So it's a very, very significant uh, measure of John's and Jody's and others' uh, contribution they set up the ABCD Institute to proliferate the learning and to encourage that alternative story, the inside out uh, citizen led story. And uh, in many respects, that's the heritage 
that I tap into in the ABCD Institute, which is now hosted by DePaul University in Chicago City, uh, is essentially, I would think about it as a movement. It's a social movement of folks who work very closely through this perspective, through this lens uh, with communities. Yeah, it's, um, I think, a great example I was on with another gentleman, Dan Bittner, the gentleman who wrote the Blue Zones. And in in a in a story, you know, he goes into cities. <clears throat> we were talking about um exactly what you're talking about, this asset-based community. Um <clears throat> he he said, Hey, look, you need to change the environment to change the result. So he has a team that goes into the cities, and I think this is a great example. And they work on changing the walking paths and the bike paths and the ways in which people get exercise because his whole goal is to change BMI, the, the body mass index, so that people are more active. And successfully he's done this in many cities and saved in the literally in this one city, uh, San Antonio, that he used an example, $750 million in healthcare costs reduced. Um, as a result of just making these minor changes, because people will utilize that when it becomes part of the environment and when they're part of it, you know, so that was a great story. And you tell a great story about community in Vorstad, a neighborhood in, is it Deventer in the Netherlands? Hopefully. Deventer, yeah. Deventer. And two individuals named Patrick and Lindert. Tell the listeners what they did and the impact it had on the community. And it's just, a, it was a great story that you put in the book. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is a lovely story. And um, I'm, I'm honored to uh, share it on their behalf and with, the, with their permission. So Patrick and uh, Leonard are two gentlemen. And I suppose to get the listeners in the, uh, in the spirit of the story, I want you to imagine sitting with them as they're sitting outside their front uh, doors. So they're, they're neighbors and really good buddies. And what they do uh, still to this day do is they take out their deck chairs and they sit out front uh, and they chat with each other. So they're good buddies. They chat with each other. And one day as they were having a chat, uh, they started commenting on how harsh the built environment was. So lots and lots of bricks, but very, very little in the way of plants or, you know, softening foliage and, the conversation, because they're both active men, led to let's do something. And so, uh, and if you knew both of them, you'd, you'd see you'd see that it, this conversation was only going to go in one direction, and it was slightly illegal. Um, so they stood up, they got back into their houses, took out some uh, pickaxes and some shovels, and started digging up the pavement uh, bricks just under their windowsills and under which is some uh, sand and soil and put planters in essentially creating a flower box. So each of them did this under their respective windows and were terribly proud of what they called their little street garden uh, in, uh, in, in Vorstadt, which is the name of the neighborhood in Deventer, uh, which is a city in the Netherlands. Uh, so these two Dutch men, you know, very proud and they come out the next day. So they're sitting beside their two little 
street gardens and their neighbors start commenting and saying, oh, that's very pretty. That looks nice. How did you do that? And of course, being proactive, they told them, but they also then offered to do it for them. And before very long, you get this ripple effect where these little street gardens start popping up uh, compliments of Patrick and, and Leonard. And eventually the word spreads from the street there on to other streets and other people say, hey, we'd quite like to do that. But is there a particular way you do that? Are we allowed to do that? Is that against regulation? And Patrick and Leonard just said, you know, don't ask permission, just ask forgiveness if you need to. But it, it, we need to have a nice environment here. So eventually these things started popping up all over. They started mentoring other people on other streets. And so hundreds of these little street gardens popped up. And this is significant, I think, just to contrast it with the story that you told a few minutes ago around the green zones, because here you have local neighbors who are changing their environment, as opposed to people coming from outside to change the environment. And I would commend the inside out uh, contrast here wherever possible. And I'm sure, you know, in terms of green zones, that's a really critical uh, insight that Wherever the green zones uh, or the blue zones, excuse me, I think of green zones now because I'm thinking of Patrick and Leonard, but the blue zones are really powerfully also about how people feel they can shape their own environment. So that that's a little bit of what happened here, because as Patrick and Leonard started going to other streets and essentially mentoring other neighbors on how to create their own street gardens, they started meeting other people, other neighbors who had various passions. So, for example, they met a lady who was also sitting outside her front porch and she was knitting. And Patrick said to her, you know that I've been in hundreds of houses now talking with people and I've met many people who enjoy knitting like you do. And in fact, we've got our own knit and natter group uh, in the neighborhood and these are people who just get together and knit together. Would you like me to introduce you to them? And she thought that was a lovely idea. And so what, what you see with Patrick and Lendart as well is that they're connectors. So they're connecting people together like this lady. And a beautiful ripple effect of that was that group, that knit and natter group, uh, knitted uh, a wonderful scarf that was three kilometers long uh, to the uh, colors of the local football club that's community owned. And they actually uh, set a Guinness Book of Records uh, in doing that. It's the longest scarf ever knitted in the world. So these, these are kind of motherhood and apple pie moments, but in all kinds of ways, the ripple stories there, like the parents who found an allotment with the help of Patrick and Leonard for their kids to play in, really was powerful. The most powerful story that comes out of that is the story about the family that uh, came as guests, uh, you know, fleeing Syria and were uh, allocated a house in that neighborhood. And the neighbors decided to come together to try to welcome that family at a time when in a lot of neighborhoods, there was quite a lot of hostility to right. um, asylum seekers and refugees and migrants coming in. So it doesn't always work out like this. But I think because of the connectivity that had been created through the various ripple effect stories that I was, I was sharing with you there, the people decided that they would wrap the house that the folks from Syria were coming to in the scarf of their local neighborhood and explained to the family that what they wanted to do 
was give an outward expression of welcome and warmth and explain to that family that even though they were fleeing from quite a traumatic environment, that they would be held in the warmth of that community and that they were safe now. I, I nearly choke up as I think about this. But the, this idea of a community finding a way of welcoming the stranger at the edge is a really powerful. And just it starts out with two guys saying, let's do something, and then slowly connecting people together and building that collective power, that collective agency. Well, it's a it's a tremendous amount of compassion on the part of the individuals to to do something like that. And I think, as the, um, a species, if we want to evolve someplace, it should be to connectivity and compassion for one another, um, which is a very very spiritual element. But at the same time, it's it's a way for us to enrich our own life as much as it is to enrich somebody else's life. But that gift of giving you know, finding them a place to live, wrapping it in the scarf. Um, what Patrick and Leonard did, helping people build their gardens, you know. And you speak about what is required to create the connected community. The book is broken down into three specific processes of change. Um, you call it discover, connect, and mobilize. Can you speak with us about these processes for change in our local communities and going from consumerism to localism, because, you know, I think, look, it's, uh, we know the prevalence of big business today. We've, I'll, I'll point to companies. It doesn't matter what it is, but let's just use Amazon. You know, that is consumerism at its best, probably. Um, and then you have these other companies like Etsy trying to kind of disrupt that a little bit by all the smaller homemakers where you can buy this. Um, but localism is really more than that. Um, so if you would, how would somebody listening today who might be in some small city next to me listening or a larger city saying, Hey, we need to have more localism, less mm. consumerism? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so a lot of this is about imagination, but what helps imagination is the discovery phase. So I'll just take you through the discovery connection and, and mobilization phases really briefly, because it gives us, it's not a map, but it gives us a compass, an orientation point in terms of how we might do something that makes visible what's often invisible. So that discovery phase starts with what is it we have locally, which we may not necessarily either see, or if we do see, we may not necessarily value. What, what are those things? So there's an intentional process of let's map our assets. Let's discover what we have. And we, we can't discover unless we go and actually have conversations, go out and find out. So that's a, a really critical piece in the whole process. Let's start by looking under our own noses. Let's go outside Let's connect with our neighbors and let's find out what are the assets that we have locally in terms of what kind of resources, what knowledge base, what skills and gifts do our neighbors have? Uh, what do the clubs and the groups do? Um, it's really who, striking. Who usually drives those initi initiatives, Cormac? Because, you know, in other words, again, it takes the drive and ambition and will to want to find these assets, it's to me, it'd be like building, building a big map. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, in a sense, it's like, yeah. Hey, uh, Oh, great. I live here near the ocean. 
we've got the ocean, or we've got natural resources all around us, or we've got people that are doing things locally that nobody knows anything about, right? Um, so who drives that initiative and, and can they find all these resources on your website? Yeah, they, they, they can. Um, but I, let, let, let's just go back to that very important question of who initiates or who precipitates this. Right. And I think the answer is, is that largely, if you look at how communities naturally organize themselves, what you'll find is that somebody in the local neighborhood has a concern or has a passion or has a care, you know, and so they can go one of two ways often. So one way they can go is they say, you know, uh, we tell a story about a mom uh, who's worried that her, her daughter is getting pulled in a direction she's not too happy about. And she wants to try to discover a way of connecting her daughter over the summer period with productive adults and productive activity, right? So here's a woman who could say, well, I'm going to refer my daughter to a program. And, you know, get her organized in some kind of activity for the summer. She could sort the problem out separate from her neighbors. But what she decides to do is to try to discover in the local neighborhood with her daughter, what are the possibilities here? And with her daughter, and she starts out really small, Greg. She starts out with a couple of other moms who also have a concern. They're working moms. They care for their kids on their own. They got to work. Summer's coming up. There's a lot of free time. Their girls are, you know, 13, 14 years of age. And you can understand as a parent yourself, there's a lot of concern about that, right? So do we go to the marketplace and pay for some kind of a youth program or whatever? Or if we can't afford it, do we try to get, you know, some voluntary organization to work with our kids? Well, she didn't. She decided she was going to try and tap in to the local assets in the community. And she discovered even in this very low-income neighborhood, that there were hundreds and hundreds of neighbors who do all kinds of interesting things, uh, voluntary uh, activities, uh, go out, care for homeless people. Uh, she discovered hairdressers. She discovered police officers. And she went with three or four of her neighbors. They knocked on their neighbor's doors and they said, you like us have young kids. We'd like to self-organize this summer that every one of our kids can have a number of weeks where they can go and experience a work placement with you for a day. Would you sign up to bring one of the kids from the neighborhood to work with you for a day, get your boss to agree to that? So we can change the story about our neighborhood that says nobody in our neighborhood amounts to anything worthwhile. And we can get our kids to recognize there's lots of amazing people doing lots of amazing things in our neighborhood. And we got really productive adults that they can look up to. So across the course of that summer, they tapped into the assets of their neighbor, uh, their neighbors and, you know, their neighbor's workplace. They couldn't have done that unless they went through a discovery phase. They had to go knock on doors. They had to have conversations. They could have, be, they could have been consumers, right? They could have gone and outsourced the problem. But, and this is a choice, I guess, that they decided to make, some of which was just they didn't have the purchase power to go to the marketplace. So if you don't have money power, you better have neighbor power. <laughs> and if you want the neighbor power, you've got to go out and uncover it. It's under the stones, but you got to lift the stones up to find it. Mm -hmm. 
So that's what they did. They, they door knocked. They talked to their local barbers and hairdressers. They went to look to the local assets. That's the first thing. But it's not enough to just discover and map. You also then got to connect those things together. So you might find that there's seven girls who really want to learn about hair braiding. And you might have a, you know, somebody who knows how to do that as a local artist, but then they need somewhere to meet and it needs to be bigger than the house. So then you got to tap into a local meeting place. Maybe it's a local school or a local gym or a church and you've got to go and you've got to make the connection. So that's why we go from discover the assets that are disconnected. So you've got kids who got something. You've got maybe a skilled local artist that's willing to teach. You've got a place that they can meet, but you've got to connect those things together and you've got to build the relationships. The mums can't just go see you, you know, thank you for looking after my kids. They've got to do the relationship building and the trust building. And all of this goes at the speed of trust, you know, but what's lovely about it is then you get to the mobilizing because at the end of that summer, everybody feels more confident, more buoyed up. Kids have aspirations that they didn't have previously. And what does everybody say at the end? What are we going to do next summer? How do we mobilize, get this going, involve the men? How about we get the the, the boys involved? And now what you're creating is a new gang, a positive gang, where people belong, they feel productive, and they get to do things that contribute to the welfare of the community. That's what gangs offer in a negative sense. What this story is, a story about discovering, connecting, and mobilizing in a positive way. And it's about localism, not consumerism. That's a great story, by the way, because it gives people an example that they can relate to. Almost anybody could relate to that. And you said the speed of trust, and it reminded me of a recent interview with Stephen M. R. Covey, uh, who wrote the book, The Speed of Trust, and then his sister, who was on for a book that it had been in the works for 10 years since their father had died called life in crescendo. And it was really about, you know, when you think about it, as we age, we get the opportunity to continue to contribute. And I think that's what this is really all about, you know, is what kind of contribution can we make? Um, And probably in this space, you speak about the gentle power of connectors. I've always been known by my community as a connector. Um, What are the characteristics and why are they so important to building a community of support and connectivity? Because, you know, those connectors seem to be the spark most of the time. It's like for some reason they end up looking and seeing, connecting the dots, right? And it's not just connecting people. It's really connecting the dots around how do we solve the problem? Um, So tell us a little bit about those characteristics as you outlined them in the book. Yeah. So there are, there are many, but there's six that we really zero in on and um, often, you know, try to uh, invite people to see if they can find folks that uh, might fit some or all of those. So the six characteristics, and it's important to say that we, we think about connectors as distinct from leaders. So one of the things that you'll see, the first characteristic is that they invest their energy in associational activities. So they're very focused on the we rather than the me. 
So you'll, you'll not hear them talk a lot about personal growth or me time. <laughs> They're talking very much about uh, how do we get folks connected to do things that they might be interested in doing together. So they're more focused on the choir than they are the uh, elite solo singer. And they're really thinking that's, that's their nature. I don't, you can't train somebody to be a connector. They came into the world made this way. They very much enjoy belonging and involvement and reciprocity. So that, that's the first thing. Their whole orientation is associational. The second characteristic is they achieve their ends because they're trusted by the community. So they're not seen as being nosy, uh, as interfering in people's business. And their influence, which is important, is it has nothing to do with title, with position or claim to authority. So I think in that sense, they're not in the second characteristic. They're not coming from a place of influencing by status. They're influencing their through relational welfare and through right. trust. Right. Um, a third characteristic is they're really happy about giving credit away to people. So you'll regularly hear them lift people up and feature people. So they're not trying to, they're more eco than ego. They're really trying to use their ability to shine light on other people's gifts and then to orientate the gifts of one person. So they'll say, Greg, you're a wonderful public speaker, and I know a group that could really benefit from your gift. Could I introduce you to somebody who I think will really appreciate your capacities? Mm -hmm. So they don't ask, will you volunteer for an activity? They will call you forth by your gift. They will know you, and sometimes they'll see your gift before you do. And they will also know somebody that you will get on with like a house on fire. And they have the audacity to say, would you allow me to introduce you to this person? Because I think the two of you have just been waiting all your lives to meet each other. And so you really find it very hard to say no to a connector. <laughs> but I think that's that's a critical piece. So they're very personal in how they talk. That's a fourth piece. They're talking to Greg, the gifted person who is, and they'll 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 speak in those terms. A fifth characteristic is they're non-apologetic. So they're not doing this out of charity. They're not doing this because, you know, oh poor Cormac, he has no friends. Let's try and be nice to him. They're doing this because they genuinely believe that they can't be fully a community until Cormac's gifts have been, have been welcomed. In psychology, they say that a mother's never happier than her most unhappy child. Well, a connector's mindset is to say that a community is never fully a community until the person most at the margin has brought their gifts into the center. So they're very much defining community, not by the strength of leadership in the community, but by the depth of associational life and our welcome for the stranger at the edge. So I think that's their nature. And of course, they're very sociable creatures as well. So, you know, they, um, they tend, they tend to, I would say, not be at the front of the room, uh, with the microphone chairing the meeting. I think right. they're in the middle of the room. Uh, congealing and bringing together, maybe handing out cake and, uh, you know, so that, 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 that's the best I think I can do in a short time to give people a feel for the characteristics as much. Well, as you know, it's a, it's certainly, a, it was great. You know, you gave almost all of the characteristics. And I think in defining 
someone who is a connector, I think there's two words that are used, frequently used. One is connector and a maven, Um, you know, and and in me being Jewish, you know, either one works. Uh, but the reality is, is that it, it is something that, um, I am known for. People almost interestingly kind of expect it. They're like, Oh, Greg's going to introduce me to somebody again today. And who, you know, who's that going to be? And, and if I look at the number of emails that I send for introductions, it's, it's a lot. Uh, I spend a lot of time carefully thinking about, can this person make a connection? Could something spark? What, what might happen as a result of that? And so my mind is always putting those dots together. And whether it's in your community or it's through what you do, I think it's an important element because you never know what's going to happen as a result of the willingness to make that introduction. And, you know, can I can I just add one thing that might be helpful for folks as well? What we notice, too, is that connectors are willing to step back. So after the connection is made, they don't have a need to possess that connection. Correct. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so yeah. that's the distinction, I think, between a connector, and I don't want to over-egg this, but uh, perhaps a connector and a networker. Uh, networkers often talk about, you know, um, my network. Uh, connectors don't talk about my yeah. uh, connections. Yeah. So I think that's important. Well, it's through. again, it's for the good life. It's for the greater good. That's right. um, they're, they're not in it for a personal gain. There, there's never a thought of a personal gain. Mm-hmm. It's about the we, not the me. And that's so that's how you make those connections. And if something good happens and you hear back from somebody, great. You know, you hope that it, you know, hope that it did something, you know, and in wrapping up our interview, the, the book is filled with wonderful stories. We only got to talk about a few of those stories, but there's a lot examples and advice on moving toward the connected community. If you would speak to the listeners with the tips that you provide to hold a discussion, which is the initial step that needs to be taken to discover, connect, and mobilize the gifts of our neighborhoods. So basically what I'm saying is the impetus, the starting point right at the tip, um, you know, those discussions that need to be held. You, you spoke about it a little bit going out and, you know, going door to door and talking to people and looking at assets and seeing what's available. Um, mm. What What is this element at this tipping point? Yeah, the tipping point, and, and, and I can give you a really, really quick story that because I think the question might be, how do we do it on our street at a very small scale? And the answer is learning conversations. You know, you can door knock, you can go to where people are naturally connecting anyway, the bumping places and the gathering spaces, and just begin the process of finding out what people care about enough to act upon, what they'd be willing to do for their neighbors help them. So in that sense, a listening campaign where you're going out and you're listening. And an example of this, uh, one of my favorite examples happened in Hodge Hill in Birmingham, where a, a Church of England minister, a pastor said, Hey, I want to do, I want to work this way. So I don't want to just set up projects. I want to really connect the community. And he found seven local people in his neighborhood who were really just good at connecting their community, are good sociable people. And what he did was he said, well, let's over 12, maybe 13 weeks. Let's just go without any agenda 
and give our community a good listening to. And we'll be opportunistic. Let's not make it a hardship duty or burdensome. You guys already know lots of people. So just talk to the people you know. But be a little bit more intentional. Find out what's kind of moving this community. What are the priorities? What do people care about? And of course, if you've got seven connectors that are already connected, I mean, most of them know 20, 30 people anyway in the neighborhood, you've got a lot of reach there already. And what they began to do also was, and this is the key tip, they began to be very, very thoughtful and very attuned to who are the other connectors in the neighborhood who represent the diversity of that community, represent, you know, reach into parts of the community from an ethnicity point of view or a gender point of view that I don't, an age point of view. And they found 93 other people, Greg who are connectors, as we've been talking about. So now they go from one pastor to eight people, seven and the pastor to a hundred people. And you know what they did? They went to those folks and they sat with them and they said, hey, you know that your neighbors are talking about you and they're saying really positive things. So they told the stories back to the connectors that their neighbors had told about them. And then they said to those connectors, we'd like to have a party to celebrate you, to appreciate you, to appreciate what you're doing. Uh, the local church is very kindly. They're not trying to convert you. Uh, so don't worry about that. But they want to offer the gift of their space to come and have a party with no agenda. So people of faith and of no faith just coming together as neighbors. And the ask of each of those connectors was, would they bring four people from their block that they felt cared deeply about the kinds of conversations that were going on, conversations that were about what have we got? How can we use it to make a good life, to make a decent life for everybody, but also to collectivize our voice to talk to outside agencies and make sure they're trustworthy, they're useful, and they're serving us well? Well, they had 500 people now in a room having a party, sharing stories, good, traumatic, the whole mix but stories that were really about that neighborhood, about the tapestry of that neighborhood. And over the last seven years, they've done that every year. And they have built a really, really powerful connected community that can do a lot of stuff locally itself, but also is working much more collaboratively with outside agencies, police force, etc. And I really like this idea because what they're doing over a very, very steady course of time is they're bringing the gifts of every single neighbor to the table, but they're also working much more effectively with outside providers and saying, hey, we're not on our knees. We're partners here. Mm -hmm. There's things we can do ourselves, so remove the barriers. There's things we need a little help with, so be collaborative, be on tap, don't be on top. And then there's things you need to do to serve us, and you need to do that transparently and in an accountable way. Well, you've given a great story about how to start that, and I think the book is also a great opportunity, the connected community to get a copy of the book. Uh, if anything, this morning during this podcast or whatever time you're listening this to this podcast resonated with you, uh, definitely go to um, the website because the resources at Cormac's website is nurturedevelopment.org. Uh, there you'll find lots of resources. There's downloads. Um, you can basically watch uh, the the TEDx talk, which I would recommend. Um, but inside this book, there's a lot of resources as well. And that's the great thing. So if you like reading, you know, get the book, uh, go and check out the website. 
uh, to learn more about what Cormac is advocating. And if you feel like your community is disconnected, not connected, which I think many people out there listening could relate to, um, why don't you become the maven who's listening to this podcast or the connector who could change that and find out what the resources are and what are the assets and start your own, um, how do you want to call it? Start your own discussion groups and find out more. Um, it'll grow from there. I think if you put the effort in, it will grow from there. Uh, Cormac, you've been a pleasure having on the Inside Personal Growth and speaking about uh, your new thanks book. And uh, thanks for spreading the word about helping to make a good life, really just a good life for everybody. That's what we're that's what we're attempting to do with all of this uh, work that we're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Craig. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.